Bibles with me to 1 Samuel. Uh, we uh, looked at a survey last week of the whole book. This morning I want us to start with the first chapter. Really the first uh, seven chapters of 1 Samuel could be under the heading God's Cure for Despair. Because this is a time in Israel's life when they really would seemingly hopeless, without hope, wondering how they're going to get out of this dark place. And God uh, does deliver them when we begin to see the beginnings of that this morning. Um, maybe it's a time of despair for you as you think through some of these things. Um, some people aren't looking forward to spring. It kind of gets them down, like I'm not ready for it. It's like tax season. I'm never ready for tax season. You know, I hate it, hate that time and because I know... Uh, I do estimated taxes, and I get a double whammy. So I got to pay the estimated, plus I got to pay the tax, and it's a double time for me, and I hate it. Um, so it's not a fun time. Um, maybe you're going through some other tough things. You know, some of us here are going through illnesses without really known solutions or healing or cure, um, and that can easily get you down. Um, if it's not taxes, it's just too much month at the end of the money. Um, there may be too much weight at the middle of the body. There may be too many cicadas ringing in between your ears. I mean, there's all kinds of things. It just goes on and on and on when you start thinking about what could be getting us down. Um, we can get down so easy. First uh, Samuel's a great place to turn to start thinking about how to, to get out of this. It reminded me of an old historical story, true story, Midwestern lawyer that um, was really down in his writings. He, he, he writes about it. He says, I must be the most miserable man living in America. Whether or not I'll get better, I don't know. I don't really think I will. His friends kept all razors and knives, anything sharp away from him. He frequently spoke about just ending it all. Well, he didn't. He went on to be one of the most uh, memorable people in our American history. His name was Abraham Lincoln. But Abraham Lincoln was a man who, who felt terribly depressed before God brought him out of that. Maybe you feel like a Lincoln. It doesn't mean you can't be somebody of great value and significance and still have a terrible time. The story of First Samuel chapter 1 is the story of Hannah. Hannah is a celebrated, believing woman. Stop and let that soak in. And yet this is a chapter of her desperate despair. So you've got a celebrated believer in a deep, dark place. You can be a very valuable, very significant mother of God and very, very depressed that's where she is and God shows us how she gets from that place to feeling a whole lot better um, if I gave this a particular title I want you to see not Hannah's depression because the, the scripture is given to us really for two reasons what we are to believe about God and what we're to do to please him uh, let's focus on what God is telling us about himself and what we're to believe about him and what he's doing in this passion, passage rather than looking at Hannah. So in other words, I'm not calling this depression. I'm calling it what God is doing when we're depressed. 
What is God doing here? And I want you to begin to see it. And I want you to see just three wonderful things. God's aware, God's attentive, and God's active. Okay? First of all, I want you to see God's awareness of Hannah's predicament, our predicament. The first uh, eight verses of 1 Samuel 1. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathiam, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. That's kind of the focus here. And the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. There's the key point. Elkanah's got two wives. One has children. One does not have children. The one who does not have children, Hannah, is very depressed about it. Verse 3. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. We looked at last week. That's a pretty significant thing because this is the time of the judges when people did what was right in their own eyes. A lot of people did not go up and worship. They worshiped themselves. They worshiped their idols. Here's a religious man worshiping God. He's got at least one of his wives is a worshiper as well. That's Hannah. Um, and so they're going to worship. Now, when they do, did this yearly feast worship, they would take their animals to be sacrificed with them. And that created, so they gave their animals, which was their tithe. How do you give 10% of an animal? Well, you, you give part, the priest takes his part, gives part back to you. And you get to celebrate with that part. So that's what's, that's what's going on here. Um, so they go up, and um, it says, the last part of verse 3, and the two sons of Eli, that's the priest, his sons Hophni and Phinehas were priests to the Lord there. So they're dealing with all the right exchange of sacrifices. Verse 4, when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, so obviously uh, uh, the worshipers had to take turns. You can't sacrifice all the animals at the same time. So Elkanah's in line here. He's waiting his turn. When that day came, he would give his portions, uh, or he, the priest gave his portions back, and then Elkanah, he's the dad, he divides it up among his wives and his kids. So that's what's going on in verse 4. So when the day came, Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, and to Hannah, he would give a do double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, tells us what's going on here, her rival, whose rival? Hannah's rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7, it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. Some women are just mean. This is one of them, okay? Panina is mean. Uh, she's just poking and stabbing at Hannah, referring to her as a, as a rival. Elkanah, the loving husband, has got to deal with all this. Verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So I think Elkanah is not just... I mean, when, when he gets his food back from the priest, he's loading... Hannah's plate up. It's really a double portion. I know that can be translated different ways, but I think that's what it is. And he's trying to say, look, I know Panina's mean. I know she's provoking you. I know she's ribbing you. She's constantly trying to bring you down. 
but can't you see how much I love you? I love you with all my heart. I know you want a son. I love you like a, 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 ten sons would love you. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you everything. So he's really trying to help his very depressed wife. He knows she's hurting. He knows she's suffering. He's trying to help her out. Um, you know, um, when we, we go through times of predicament, uh, mean people hurt, and it bothers us. I mean, we, we have here clearly, the husband knows his wife is depressed. He's trying to minister to her in her depressed state. But she's got some, some meanness going around. This Panina, she's there provoking her. You can imagine how it would be that El- Elkanah starts dividing the food out and he serves Hannah first, gives her the best choice meat, double amount she's ever possibly going to eat. Then he gives uh, Panina and all her sons and daughters their portion. And one of the kids, I mean, they're going to get it honest from mom, say, hey, why is Hannah getting so much? Why does she get that piece? That's the good stuff. And you can just hear Panina like, yes. Well, Daddy does that because she can't have children. Isn't that right, Hannah? You know, just poking at her. You can't, can't do nothing about it, can you? And it just, it's miserable. So you're in this predicament uh, with Hannah that, oh, life is miserable. I, I don't know if this will ever get better. I, I'm obviously not doing anything wrong here. I can't create children. Why, why am I in this predicament? And the thing that hurts the most sometimes when we're in such a predicament is, is, is not that everybody knows, and it's not that mean people might be poking at us, but we feel like, obviously, God is not aware of my predicament because it's bad. If God were aware and God is omniscient and God is loving, then certainly he would do something. The, the greater pain is that maybe God is just unaware of what I'm going through. And I want you to see God is not unaware. God is very aware of our depression. How do you see that here? How do you know it? Look at verse 5. Hannah would be given a double portion for he loved Hannah. This is what you circle. But the Lord had closed her womb. Repeat it again in verse 6. Panina's ribbing her. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. God designed this depressed state and environment. God was in charge. God was very much aware. It was the Lord who closed her womb. Only God can make children. God had determined not to make children through Hannah. At this point, he had purposely not given Hannah children. Uh, A step to the cure is realizing God's not unaware. Um, Hebrews 4.13 says, All things, all creatures are laid bare and open before the God with, with whom we have to do. All things are open and laid bare to the God with whom we have to do. God sees. God is not unaware of our predicament. Our situation is surely hopeless if God doesn't see. But God delights in helping us when we're at our deepest and darkest place. Think through some of the, the
the most significant people in history, in Scripture. And they come out of this God-designed place of despair. Hannah's one of them. But you could go back in Genesis to Joseph. You remember Joseph? He had all of his brothers constantly ribbing him. Why are you the one that's supposedly most loved? He had men that were real mean to him. And one day they strip him of all his clothes and say, he's just a slave. Look, we don't even put clothes on our slaves. Why don't, why don't you buy him from us? And they sell their brother into slavery. And he gets thrown into a prison and becomes a slave. And not for a little while. We're talking for years. Joseph's in a very deep, dark place. And yet, you know the story. God raises him up to literally be king of Egypt to save millions from destruction. But it's out of that despair and depression that Joseph is constantly crying out, God, do you see what's going on here? God, are you aware of my needs? Do you see that I didn't do anything to, to cause this? He cries out, or, or King David... Take, I've taken two righteous examples. Take a, a sinner. After David committed adultery and murder, it, was before, it wasn't until his sin that he really dives to this deep depression. And he's crying out to God, Lord, I need a new heart. Man, I have really messed up. And it's out of that that God molds a man. He says, this man is after my own heart. And he became a teacher in Israel, instructing us through the Psalms. And he became, uh, rose to the throne uh, with, from whom Christ comes. Uh, or look at Christ on the cross. There's no better example of deep darkness than Christ there. It says the whole earth turned dark as Christ cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have You've forsaken me. Why am I in this place and God's not in the picture? And you know, God is saying, the reason I'm rejecting Christ so that I can accept you, so that I can accept my people. God takes us through some of the times of great despair to do some of his greatest work. If you're in a dark pit, if your feet are bogged down like miry, in miry clay, understand that pit to be the arena in which God does some of his most significant work. Right where you are. That's what's happening over and over and over in Scripture. It's the right situation for greatness. Doesn't make you feel undepressed. But it does give you hope. When God is aware and God's process has begun, even if that process takes years. Second, I want you to see not only is God aware of our predicaments and not only is he working through them, but God is very attentive. Hannah's praying. Um, does God hear her prayer? And we get the, the indication, yes, he does. Verse 9, uh, let me read it to you. He says, And Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So she's praying. She's asking God to hear her prayer. It's a very sincere, fervent prayer. You get that from the phrase. She's weeping bitterly as she prays. Verse 11, she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. So she's not just praying for children. She's praying for spiritual leadership to be given to the nation. She can clearly see that Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas do not have what her nation needs. And she's praying, God, give me that spiritual leader. Give me that one that will lead us, that will be godly. Uh, I will uh, commit myself to the Nazarite vow with him. That he will be one who is completely set apart for the leadership of our people. And I'll do that if, if you'll give me that son. She's praying. And she's praying fervently. Verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Like that. You got it? That's going to sound good on the tape, right? Um, when she's, she's there, you see tears coming out of her eyes. You, maybe you hear moans and groans, but you just see lips moving. It's like, this gal's drunk. I mean, this is, this is crazy. How can God hear? She's not even letting words come out. She must be sick. She's mad. She's beside herself. I mean, that's what Eli's thinking. And he lets her know that's what he's thinking. Um, verse 13, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving. Uh, verse 14, so then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. It's play on words there in the Hebrews. What she's saying is, you think I'm pouring spirits into me, but I'm literally pouring the Spirit out of me. You've got it all wrong. I'm not pouring the spirits in. I'm pouring the Spirit out. I'm exhausted. I'm desperate for God to hear my prayer. It's like Paul says, if I'm mad, I'm mad for Christ. I'm just all in for Christ to do something. Verse 16, she says, So do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Now don't miss verse 17, 18. Then, so Eli is sobered up through that exchange of words. He says, oh, I, now I see what's going on. And apparently God is speaking to Eli. It's like he's got one of those secret headpieces in, you know. And from the control tower, God tells Eli, hey, I'm going to listen to her prayer. I do hear her prayer. You let her know I'm hearing her prayer. 
And that communication, it's kind of hard to see it. That's going on. Notice it. Verse 17. Then Eli answered and said to Hannah, go in peace. It's like, my bad. I was wrong. I was criticizing you. Now I want you to have peace. This is a benediction. I want you to have blessing. May the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have asked of him. And I think it's stronger than maybe God will answer your prayer. It's no, God has heard your prayer. And you're going to get what you asked for because notice her answer, verse 18. So she said, wow, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, ate, her face was no longer sad. She gets it. She, she's praying to God and God hears her prayer. God is attentive. And sends a message to Eli, give this woman your benediction, your blessing, because I'm going to bless her. And she gets that message. If we don't, she gets it enough that she gets up and it's like washes her face. She's not sad anymore. She eats, she drinks, she's happy. Why? Because God heard her prayer. Long before Hebrews 4, 16 was ever written, this is her. Let me read it to you. Hebrews Chapter 4. She gets it. She knows that she has someone she could go to and she gets the grace she's after. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. I quoted to you earlier that says, There's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of whom we have to do. Verse 14. So therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, since... Since we have a God who's watching us, and that's Jesus. Verse 15, he's a high priest who, who can sympathize. He can empathize with us. Since we have him, verse 16, therefore, let's go to him. Let's, let's ask him for things in prayer. Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hannah knew that was the protocol. She got up. From all that ribbing at the table, she goes before the priest. She pours out. She's going before the throne of grace. She says, I need grace. And the grace I need can only come from God of heaven. And the priest says, you got it. You got it. God's told me you've got it. One of the key things we need to know in our depression is God hears our prayers. Uh, he's not only aware but he's paying attention enough to listen to what we're going through um i won't point anybody out here but i was in the coffee machine room right down the hall one day you know there, there's people that you feel like you can be honest with and other people you just be courteous to you know what i mean we we all do that people ask us all the time how you doing well i'm doing fine that's courtesy right you don't unload on people who can't handle it people that you don't want to handle it. You don't trust. So they say, how are you doing? He's like, I'm good. I'm good. But there's certain people that you say, this is a trusted friend. This person can go to a deep, dark place with me. And I happen to be in the copy machine room making a copy. And one of those people that I consider one of those people in my life happened to walk in. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, whoa, he actually can handle this. So I said, well, quite frankly, I'm not doing too good today. And he said, oh. And there was a long pause. 
And then he said, can we change the subject? I want to ask you something. And I thought, well, at least that's honest. You know, and I thought, but ah, I thought we could have this moment. I thought maybe I could share my request and somebody would give me a hug and a prayer because that's what I need. And you may feel that way sometimes, like, I know I got this very, very loving spouse that's always asking what can they do, but I just don't think they get it. I, I just wish somehow I could get a hug from God. I wish somehow God would let me know that he hears my prayers because I think he's the only one who can truly sympathize and empathize with me. And that's the word of God to us through Hannah. She found that God was attentive to her prayer. That's the word of God to us from Hebrews 4.16. Take it to the throne of grace and watch the fact that you've got a high priest who has walked where you've walked and he knows how to sympathize. He's not going to say, can we change the subject? But he's going to listen and he's going to care and he has power and ability to take care of our needs. God's not like everyone else. Sometimes we think, well, he's just like everybody else. He's not. He can sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses. Praise him. He is attentive. We don't have to, you know, sometimes we we feel like everybody else just wants to make excuses for us. Well, she's that way or he's that way because of this, 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 and this. That's why they're depressed. And yet God says, I know why you're depressed. I've created this arena myself. I'm not going to make excuses for you. At the same time, I can empathize. I can sympathize with you. And I can take care of you where you are and take you to where I want you to be. So let's look at some of God's activity. He's aware. He's attentive. He's very active. Um, As you start looking through uh, verse, verse 19 to the end, and I'm going to take you all the way through her prayer in chapter, uh, or praise in chapter 2, you begin to see God's activity. Uh, Verse 19, then they arose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord, and returned again to their house, and Ramah and Elkna had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Notice the emphasis, the Lord remembered. We're beginning to see God is active in her situation. God's already, he's active in her sex life. That's what's going on here. God is beginning to create a child. So she conceives, verse 20. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived. How did that happen? God made it happen. That she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. She remembers that prayer. I pray God God was attentive. God is active. He's active in birth. Uh, Verse 21 then, then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah didn't go. So here's this lady who's been going every year. Now she's not going. And literally what she does, she says, I'm going to hold back a few years. I'm going to wait until Samuel is weaned. And that could be four or five years old. Six or seven, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. We just know he's still young. He's been weaned by the time he shows up. 
Verse 26, she says, so, so when she does show up, she said, Oh, my Lord, speaking to Eli the priest, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. So she's got to remind him. It's been years. I'm the one that you, you, know, you, you said was drunk, and it wasn't drunkness. It was, it was bitterness and prayer. Verse 27, this is the boy I prayed for, and the Lord has given me my petition whence I, I, I ask of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's dedicated to the Lord. Anna mentioned this last week. And he, the boy, worshiped the Lord there. So he's old enough to worship. He's old enough to see what's going on, to know what's going on. God's not only active in birth, in dedication, being separated here to this holy task of being a Nazarite and a leader of God's people. God is active in salvation. He's, Samuel is worshiping God. He's worshiping as a saved child. And Hannah makes that the first part of her praise, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts. So she's worshiping in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Ha, 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 Penina. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Maybe she's got the first saved child of the family. But she's got God at work, not only giving her children, but giving her saved children. And the firstborn is set apart for this leadership. So see God's activity, um, active in birth, active in saving. He's active in knowing. Let me just keep reading. Verse 2, there's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one beside you. There's no... There's, nor is there any rock like our God. There's no one more strong, strength, stable. Verse 3, boast no more so very proudly. He's going to show you that the proud get brought down, the humble get lifted up. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. Again, maybe a jab back at Penina, the proud, arrogant one. But notice the actions of God. And with him, actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire uh, themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. So I don't know if she just got seven kids during this time frame before she's praying. But she was the barren one. The implication is now she has seven. Samuel's one. But she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So God's action, we see it all through Scripture. God says, I am the God who will humble the proud and will exalt the humble. God's active in doing that. He says, that's what God's been doing. I've been the humble one. I've been the barren one. I've been the one in distress. God's raising me up and my children. The others he's bringing down. That's God's actions. He says, notice that. Um, again, this emphasis, being lowly, being humble in a lowly state is a great place to be for God's actions, God's activity. Verse 7, the Lord makes the poor rich. He brings uh, the low. Um, he brings the low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the word on them. Well, you begin to see God's actions raising up a Samuel who was poor, who was lowly. He's exalting him to a seat of honor. And the mom knows that. Hannah knows all of that. Uh, this process of God 
to take her son to a very important place. Um, do you see the importance of despair? Do you see the importance of maybe your predicament? Maybe it's going to be a while yet. But sometimes God does his greatest work. Some of his greatest works through these things we want to push away and say it's just of no value. I can't see the purpose in this. I can't see the significance of this trial. It's just, it's just misery after misery. There's no value in it. One day I was um, dove hunting with my dad. And uh, I, was, I grew up using, started at eight years old, using my, my grandfather's gun. And I thought it was a piece of trash. You know, it just, it was the worst gun in the world. Why would I have to use this gun? It was so heavy. Imagine an eight-year-old carrying two steel barrels. It was a double barrel. And it was heavy. And as a, you know, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I don't want to figure that out, you know. Scrawny little eight-year-old trying to lift this gun up. Oh, it was miserable. And I'd be out there trying to, to shoot doves, and everybody's getting doves but me. You know, and I'm just, ah, woe is me. I wish I had a good gun. All my friends got automatics. Automatics, you just go bam, 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 and they're light. You just keep shooting and shooting, and it's so much fun. I had this old double barrel. You know, and I I walked through this corn patch, and an eight-year-old, you know, about that high, and the corn's about this high. And I finally came out of the corn on the other side. Ah, I can't, can't hit a thing. And some man on the other side said, hey, son, what's wrong? It was obvious something was wrong. I said, I got this old double barrel. I can't hit nothing. I said, the sight's in the middle. There's a barrel on each side, which means you're off target every time you shoot. You're either to the right or to the left. Dumb. Who invented a gun like this? It's crazy. You know? And I, I have to shoot it. This is what my dad says I got to shoot because my, it was my granddaddy's. He said, well, what kind of gun is it? I said, I don't know. They, on the side says something about an L.C. Smith. I don't know who that is. And the guy said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, you want an automatic, go ask your dad. I'll trade you my automatic for your double barrel, and I'll give you $500 in cash. And I said, cool, and I'm running. <laughs> hey, Dad, there's this man on the other side of the cornfield. He wants to give me an automatic. Yes, hallelujah. And he'll give you $500 if you'll exchange with him. I just thought, this is cool. My dad's probably thinking, I can't believe I am raising such a dumb kid. Son, can you not understand that if he's willing to give you twice what you've got, you might have something of value there? It's like, uh, I hadn't ever thought about that. I didn't know it was a collector's item. I didn't know they didn't make them anymore. I just thought it didn't work, you know, too good. Just so you know, don't break in my house. My brother now has that. He saw the value in it, and he took it. But it reminded me how dumb we are at times. We want to push away the things that may be the most valuable. We think there is no value. You may be pushing away a very loving spouse like Elkanah, thinking he just doesn't get it. And yet he wants to do everything in his power for you. 
or she is the best she could possibly be for you. And yet you're wanting to push away. And you're wanting to push away at times, as me, trials that God has particularly designed to strengthen and to exalt us to a very significant place. We need, a, we need to see God's actions. He delights in taking those who are down and lifting them up. God, Our God is a God who rejoices in the resurrection. He loves to resurrect. If you feel like you're at this place of, of barrenness and deadness, that's, that's the arena in which God loves to work. And when you're one of those who's been taken from that low place to a high place, you begin to rejoice and you say, now I get it. This is the kind of activity God does. I encourage you to, to get that sober-mindedness to understand the activity of God, see what's going on here. Many songs have been written about it. We started the service with one from Martin Luther that I think you can relate to, where Luther says, from the depths of woe, God says, I raise to you. I, I raise, God, my help, Ebenezer, God, my help. I raise to you a voice of lamentation. I'm crying out. I'm weeping bitterly. It's like Luther was right where Hannah was. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me. Hear my supplications. If you're going to talk about my sin, God, if you're going to make it, if, if you're going to rationalize my depression and say, well, you're that way because of this, 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 who could possibly stand before you? He says, I'm crying out. Not to hear somebody tell me I'm in this situation because of my sin. I'm crying out because I need someone to give me grace. And that's the way the song goes on. Though great our sins and sore our woes, God's grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it sounded. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin. And sorrow. Bill Gaither, or Gloria, 70s or 80s, said it more simply. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, God understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and pain. But he made something beautiful of my life. Brokenness and strife, he made something beautiful of my life. See God's awareness, God's attentiveness, God's activity right where you are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us afresh this day. Let us be like Hannah. Let us now come and worship and adore. A God who can sympathize and empathize with us. The God who knows we're weak and need to be strong. A God who knows we've been rejected and needs to be accepted. Father, save us. Redeem us. Take us out of our sin. And take us out of our sorrow. And give us joy. Give us celebration in your presence. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take this Lord's Supper together this morning, I just want you...
to remember those words from Psalm 22. They're from the cross of Christ where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This table is a reminder of the answer. Well, son, I've rejected you so I could accept them. As you take the bread and the wine, why was his body broken? Why is his blood spilt? So you could be accepted. So you could be one who's dead in trespasses and sin and made alive. You could be resurrected in Christ. If you have had that experience and you want to rise up this morning and witness and declare, he died for me, then take this meal. If you can't say that, he died for me, I'm forgiven because he died in my place, then don't take the meal. It's voluntary. Um, ask God, God, am I missing something here? Should I be one of those who can declare you're my Savior and my Lord? Um, am I in such a dark place that I need someone to lift me up? Um, perhaps this is the day God wants to change your heart. If you need help with that, see any of us who serve you. We would love to talk with you more about how Christ resurrected us and changed our lives. But let us celebrate around this meal today just rejoicing in a God who knows what it means to be forsaken and knows how to resurrect his own. I'm going to ask the elders and deacons to come forward and we will distribute these elements to you and you take as you are led.